Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. It's Hotel Radio on December the 7th, 2021. We hope you're well wherever you are across the street or around the world. And however you're listening and or watching on YouTube or listening on any of the podcasting platforms or streaming on Big Talker, we appreciate you very much being with us on this day of busy news cycle, but also of remembrance. And we're going to talk a little bit later in the show about December 7th with a story from Pearl Harbor as we remember and honor those folks who have almost passed off the scene now. There's very few veterans of Pearl Harbor left, and we want to make sure we take a few minutes today to remember them. But first, we're going to start with some news and some politics a lot closer to home than the islands of Hawaii. And I don't know if the devil's going to go down to Georgia and get involved in the 2020 midterms, but he may be the only one not running for office down there. Uh, The big news coming out, uh, David Perdue, former senator, is going to challenge sitting Governor Brian Kemp on the Republican primary side. And there's a lot of tentacles to this. And we need to discuss them right quick. Uh, Georgia is going to be one of the most important states to watch in the 2022 midterm for a lot of reasons. One is it's obviously a state that is changing. Uh, It's a state where both Senate seats went to the Democrats after long periods of Republican control. Uh, They do have a sitting Republican governor in Brian Kemp. But the elephant in the room, and I don't know if you can even call it the elephant because it's just the most obvious thing in the world, is the last two Georgia elections were not normal. And there's no reason to believe that the 2020 midterm in Georgia is going to be normal either. Let's back up and review what happened. In 2020, uh, Donald Trump is running for re-election. The, both Senate seats, because of a special election, were up in Georgia. Uh, And the Democratic Party won both of them. Uh, John Ossoff won one and Raphael Warnock won the other, and they are both now sitting senators. The runoffs to the Georgia Senate seats that occurred in January happened in light of everything that happened after the November elections. Donald Trump and his supporters very much demanded and cried out for there to be an overturning of the election results in Georgia. Secretary of State... Brad Raffensperger was one of the Republican officials who refused to do so, and now he's being primaried by other Trump supporters. Brian Kemp, and being challenged from his, I don't know if you can even say he's being challenged from his right, because here's the thing, Brian Kemp is already one of the most conservative governors in America. Uh, This is not a conservative not being conservative enough thing. This is very much a one-issue primary by David Perdue outside of the fact that he's very hurt feelings because he lost his Senate race. 
Um, David Perdue very much ingratiated himself to the Trump side of the GOP. Uh, he worked uh, very closely with former President Trump when he was president. He very much wants it back in. Uh, it is easy to assume that Trump is going to endorse probably David Perdue in this race because of the comments he made about Brian Kemp up to and including that the state would be better off if Stacey Abrams had won. Stacey Abrams, of course, came very close to winning in his, her race against Brian Kemp. Uh, Stacey Abrams has announced that she will be seeking the Democratic uh, nomination for governor. She's going to run in that primary, and she's probably the odds-on favorite to win, ostensibly setting up a rematch with Brian Kemp. Now, is it going to be Brian Kemp or is it going to be David Perdue? This is where this thing's going to get really messy in a hurry because, again, this isn't a situation of normal politics. This is one issue. Uh, the folks that support President Trump do not think that Brian Kemp did enough towards the election to either ensure it if they had concerns about the election or to outright overturn it because they thought that President Trump won in Georgia. The backdrop to all this also is that this isn't the first time we've discussed this because on the other side, Stacey Abrams very tepidly uh, conceded and it took a lot to do her race against Brian Kemp. And now she's running again. All this is going to make a very toxic brew in the state of Georgia if this thing gets ugly. And there's no reason to think that it will not get ugly. David Perdue and Brian Kemp are going to go into all out war and they're going to do so as proxies for and against the former president, Donald Trump. This is a state that Trump has been heavily invested in. This is a state that he has spent time in since he's left office. This is a state he's made no bones about that he's going to be involved in. Here's the question that should be on everybody's mind, especially if you're a member of the Republican Party. And the Democratic Party is going to be watching this very closely. How vicious, how damaging is this intramural in this primary going to be between David Perdue and Brian Kemp? Are they going to damage each other so badly that whoever is the nominee is going to be easy for uh, Stacey Abrams to beat. Now, there's a lot of factors in this. Remember, cyclically, midterm elections go against the in-party power. Just cyclically and historically, Republicans should have a very good 2022. Remember, President Obama came into office. He lost his midterm. Not really. President Obama came into office, lost in the midterm. George W. Bush came into the midterm. Uh, Donald Trump himself lost in the midterms. Sitting presidents do not do well in midterm elections. And when you put in all the factors that are going into this Georgia election, this is going to be something to really watch, especially now that you've got two state heavyweights going toe to toe, not over traditional boundaries of what is conservative, not conservative or traditional Republican policies. It's going to be blatantly pro and not as pro Donald Trump on the ticket. This is what David Perdue is going to run about. He's absolutely calling out, even in his own announcement, Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, and Stacey Abrams. It's very clear what this campaign is going to be about. It's going to be about 2020. The danger is anytime you try to relitigate a past election, as we've seen, you are in very bad danger of losing the current one. Can the Republican Party in Georgia do this balancing act where it goes and relitigates 2022 and Donald Trump gets his vendetta ride against all the people he thinks wronged him in 2020 and still manage to win in 2022? They may be able to do it. 
uh, President Biden's approval numbers are not great. And again, historically and cyclically, Republicans should do well. But never count on the GOP to not be able to pull a defeat from the jaws of victory. And with this kind of infighting, the option of that happening is very, very high. And again, Stacey Abrams is not going to be a pushover. She came very, very close to beating Brian Kemp, so close that she was considering not uh, accepting the results and challenging them, which she did not, and did not want to concede the race, which she really didn't expressly until some time later, and even that was tempted, and now she's kind of walking it back as if she did because she can point to Donald Trump and go, well, at least I didn't do that. These things all go together, and it's going to make a toxic stew in the Georgia elections in 2022. So in a 2022 midterm, that's going to be crazy anyway. Georgia may just be one of the craziest places of them all. It bears a lot of watching. We need to pay very, very close attention to it because Georgia decided the Senate in the last election and very well may decide how a lot of our politics go going forward just past 2022 and into certain people's plans for 2024. We're starting there with politics, but we're going to cover a lot of other things. Uh, We're going to have an interview with M. Carpenter, an attorney and a senior editor and legal writer at Ordinary-Times.com that I really rely on. We're going to be talking to her in a little bit. Also, we're going to review uh, a story about Pearl Harbor December 7th, more news and more politics. That's all on today's Hertel Radio. We're so thrilled you're with us, however you're listening. We really appreciate it. And we'll be right back with more after this. Hertel Radio, welcome back. It's Andrew Donaldson. We're thrilled for you to be with us. And it is December 7th, one of the more famous dates in U.S. history. And we want to take a moment to make sure we recognize that. And remember, uh, December 7th, of course, was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that brought America into World War II, uh, the sneak attack on our naval bases in the then territory of Hawaii. Um, So much death, so much destruction. It seared an entire generation. It got us into World War II. Um, Massive effects in world history, that attack by the Japanese onto the U.S. Navy. And we wanted to take a minute today to talk about one story out of the hundreds and hundreds of stories that are involved in the Pearl Harbor attack. And this one is one of my favorites for a lot of reasons. One is it involves the USS West Virginia. And of course, everybody that knows me gets tired of me talking about how proud I am to be a West Virginia, but happens to be that the ship has a great story that goes to Pearl Harbor. Um, When Pearl Harbor happened, uh, the USS West Virginia was already been in service for quite some time, had been in the fleet. uh, And like most of the battleships was moored at Battleship Row. The captain of the USS West Virginia on that day was Captain Mervyn Binion. Uh, Captain Binion was on the signal bridge up in the tower when the attack commenced. Now, remember, the December 7th attack was on a Sunday morning. Um, A lot of the sailors were ashore. Uh, Most of them were either resting or relaxing. They were rigging for church. Uh, On some of the ships, the bands were having practice. Uh, It was about as far from a military-ready situation as you could possibly get. Uh, Nobody thought the Hawaiian islands were under threat or under attack, although there were some warning signs that were missed. Um, But that's another discussion for another day. Today, we just want to tell the story of one of the ships 
and some of the people involved to give you a little bit of a scope of how wide ranging this was. But at the same time, for the men that lived through it and the men and women, civilians and military personnel that were killed, how personal this was, how devastating this was, and some true acts of heroism that set the stage for an eventual American victory. Uh, the West Virginian Captain Binion was attacked heavily during this uh, assault on Pearl Harbor. Uh, they're still to this day not exactly sure how many bombs and torpedoes hit the West Virginia. It was at least seven torpedoes that they knew about all on one side. Uh, the West Virginia would have capsized, as another ship did, without the very quick thinking of the engineering department who counter-flooded and sank her at her moorings. Now, because of the, the shallower depth, um, sinking the ship saved it from total destruction and rolling over would have been a massive loss of life. So they control flooded it so it would sink level, which would give the option to maybe salvage the ship later, which would happen. But as the ship was under attack and sinking, uh, they think a bomb that actually hit the ship alongside and ricocheted back up, exploded across the signal bridge and struck Captain Benny in. Uh, without getting too graphic, it basically disemboweled him. Uh, he refused to be moved. He stayed and commanded his ship until he bled out right there on the deck. Uh, he continued to fight his ship until the end and tried to direct efforts as best he could. Captain Binion became one of 16 Medal of Honor recipients on that day, and he died at his post trying to fight and save the men of his ship. One of the men that attended to Captain Binion as he fell mortally wounded and later on took up a weapon and tried to return fire was Doris Miller. Doris Miller was the first African-American to be awarded the Navy Cross for his actions that day, including the way he tended to his captain, uh, Captain Binion. Um, he was a messmate. He was not supposed to be in combat. He was not trained to do anything other than serve. The Navy is still segregated at this time. In fact, the fact that he got the Navy Cross was somewhat of a miracle and in no small part due to the fact of the black press in America raising a fuss over it because the original citation just said, and I'm quoting here, a brave unnamed Negro sailor. Uh, you can tell the discrimination that these men faced, and yet they fought and served their country anyway. Um, Admiral Chester Nimitz personally pinned the uh, Navy Cross, the second highest award the Navy can give someone, on Doris Miller. Doris Miller was later killed in action in 1943 when his ship, the Liscombe Bay, was torpedoed and sank with the loss of most of the hands. He will be honored, however. Uh, already planned and already announced, one of the new Ford-class aircraft carriers will be the USS Doris Miller. Uh, the Enterprise is up, then the JFK is up, then the Enterprise, and then the Doris Miller will be rolling out. And for a long, long time, his proud name and his legacy will be at the vanguard of American military operations as it should be. Meanwhile, with all those six or seven torpedoes, whatever it was that sank, the ship, the ship burned for over 30 hours, but because they sank at level and the extraordinary efforts of its engineering crew, many who wound up being casualties, uh, they managed to save almost all the crew. Um, during the salvage operation, uh, 66 of the 106 men who died were recovered from below decks. The rest were not recovered until after the ship was raised some months later. 
the horrific part of this is that the last day marked off a calendar that they found it trapped in one of the below deck departments was on December 23rd. They sank the ship on December 7th. Those men lived in the dark without anything other than some emergency rations and some fresh water that they managed to salvage. And they found those bodies and they lived at least until December 23rd. They almost made it to Christmas. You can imagine the horrors that those men went through. But they did salvage the ship. They raised her. They uh, stripped her down and sent her to Bremerton, Washington for refit. Through most of the war in the Pacific, the West Virginia sat being rebuilt, and the ship that emerged looked completely different than the old battle wagon that had sank at Pearl Harbor. Uh, She was thoroughly modernized. Uh, She had some of the most modernized fire control radar and other upgrades that some of the other fleet didn't get that was out on service. Um, but she was still painfully slow. She was almost borderline obsolete when December 7th happened anyway. And with the advances in technology in the two to three years she sat in dry dock, she was even more obsolete. So she couldn't run with the fast carriers and those things. So she was relegated to bombardment duty, but that was important because the Marines needed that as they landed. So after being refit, they shipped the new rebuilt West Virginia, went back into service, along with almost all the Pearl Harbor battleships, by the way. Most of them were salvaged and returned to service. In fact, she was in a squadron of under uh, Admiral Jesse Orndorff of other Pearl Harbor survivors. And the irony of all this and the revenge of the West Virginia came at Saragano Strait, one of the biggest naval battles of all time. The West Virginia was leading a line of these battleships at Saragower Strait, uh, part of the Lady Golf action, and they did the classic Navy maneuver of crossing the T on the attacking Japanese. Because of the new radar systems and fire control systems that were a result of her having to be completely rebuilt, the West Virginia and the other battleships completely annihilated the Japanese force before they could even see them, let alone return effective fire. Her first salvo, struck the battleship Yamashiro, and she fired 16 more accurate salvos in the battle. Amazing efficiency and accuracy for a night battle at that time period. It was an amazing display of sailoring and fire control and modern technology, and the West Virginia led that line of battle into a crushing victory. How's that story end, though? The Yamashiro was burning and sinking, was finished off by a U.S. destroyer that darted out of the darkness to torpedo the stricken battleship. Nobody could really identify it in the fog of war and battle. Only after the war in records did they finally figure out which destroyer had finally sunk the Yamashiro, which had been mortally wounded by the West Virginia and the other Pearl Harbor survivors. That destroyer? The USS Binion named after the captain and Medal of Honor recipient of the U.S. West Virginia at Pearl Harbor. The seeds of one of Japan's greatest defeats was sown at Pearl Harbor on multiple levels. And it's a testament to our country, the men and women that defend it, the technology and shipyards that could build the ships, or in this case, resurrect a sunken ship, and the fighting spirit of our Navy men as of all our armed forces that this story came full circle. The mast of the West Virginia is on the grounds of the West Virginia University, uh, along with the ship's bell, and her legacy is carried on with uh, the USS West Virginia that is currently in service, an Ohio-class ballistic missile submarine that is on active duty.
on this December 7th, as we are almost completely out of Pearl Harbor survivors, there's only a few handful left. Make sure you take time to reflect on those men, uh, all of the World War II generation that are almost all gone, like we've been talking about with the recent passing of Bob Dole, another World War II legend that rose to the highest levels of our government. Uh, this generation is almost gone. If you get a chance to talk to them or better yet, let your children meet them and talk to them, please do so. They've almost all passed into history. And it's on us to keep their legacy and memories alive. We'll do more Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel Radio, and I'm thrilled to have my friend M. Carpenter, an attorney, a writer, and a senior editor for Ordinary Times. How are you, ma'am? I'm I'm well, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. There has been a ton of legal news. We've had a run of very high profile legal cases uh, between the Rittenhouse case, the Ahmed Aubrey case. There's other cases. Now we're going to have the school shooting case in Michigan. Uh, broad spectrum before we delve into individual things. When you go to write or you go to explain either in your writing or just your personal life, what, what do you tell people that aren't lawyers and aren't attorneys how they should approach these things? Because trials get sensationalized. Trials make for really good business in the news media. What would you tell a normal consumer of news, you know, somebody like me, like, hey, here's how you need to approach these things. And here's how you should approach something like a trial when you may not understand all the legal jargon, but you're trying to keep up with it. So many things. <laughs> the, the first thing. And give I two examples. Re- oh, OK. Maybe three. <laughs> the first thing is to remember that the laws in your state are not the law in every state. So what sounds like overcharging or ridiculous where you live may be may fit the bill somewhere else. So take into consideration um, that before you uh, expound on the pr- propriety of a, of a set of charges. That's number one. Um, number two is remember that a defense attorney's job is to represent their client and to make sure that the state proves their case. So don't go demonizing defense attorneys who are uh, pers- who are arguing on behalf of their client because that's their job and it doesn't make them bad people, which uh, I just always have to bring that up because I hate when people put the sins of the defendant, the alleged sins of the defendant on the defense attorney themselves. Um, there are exceptions to that. I think the defense attorneys in the Arbery case or an exception to that. Another thing to remember is that prosecutors often overcharge. Um, it's not the greatest way to go about things, but it's not necessarily misconduct. Now, that's what argument is for. You can make conduct fit um, a fact pattern, fit the, the language of a statute, even though it may be a, a better charge that's a lesser charge. It's not necessarily a bad idea to go with a larger charge and um, hope to plead down or to get a lesser included. I've been a prosecutor. I've been a defense attorney. So I do understand both sides of that issue. And I think it's just um, when you're in in the thick of it, it's different than when you're watching from an outside perspective. If it's your job to convict, you want to you often are going to go for the highest charge that you think you can make, even if to the outsider it seems ridiculous. I'm thinking of the terrorism charge that's pending in Michigan against the newest school shooter. Based on Michigan's law, where it's talking about um, intimidation of a government entity as an aim of a terrorist act, they're calling the school government entity, which is not technically incorrect. 
So again, it sounds odd to some people that it's terrorism. Those of us who understand that terrorism isn't just an act that causes terror, but one with a political agenda attached to it. I don't know about a political agenda, but if they're trying to intimidate a government entity, that this is an example where it sounds odd, but it may actually fit the statute in Michigan. So it may not be a overcharge there. We'll have to wait and see. So I just want people to take into consideration that things are different in every state and that these are just people trying to do their jobs as best they can. Now, to be fair, though, there is a political element to a lot of these prosecutors because in most municipalities and even at the state level, these prosecutors are also elected officials. So what's the fair way to approach that? Because it is unheard of for, a you know, to use a high profile case to launch yourself into political career. Uh, there is that element to it. So when we have a high profile case and most of these prosecutors being elected officials, how do we balance that to keep an eye on it, but also to be fair at the same time? You're correct. It is a political position. And um, but I think you have to look at you're just only hearing about it because it's high profile. It doesn't mean they're not doing the same thing to all cases that come before them. Just because it's high profile doesn't mean that's why they overcharged. If you look at their history, you're not going to. The average person isn't going to dig into all the charging decisions that don't make the news. It's probably, for the most part, still going to be um, business as usual. That that's a general statement. Obviously, well, there's going to be exceptions to that and prosecutors who do knowingly overcharge because they're trying to make a name for themselves. But I like to assume positive intent among my colleagues. So I, I would give them the benefit of the doubt unless it's a egregious situation. Um, but most prosecutors, you know, it has to get past a grand jury. They had to have presented something to the grand jury. I know you can indict a ham sandwich, blah, blah, blah. I can tell you there there is such thing as a no true bill. There are indictments that are not returned. So they had to have had something to show the jury to let a jury say that, hey, yes, there's enough to go forward here. So I would keep that in mind as well. And the prosecuting uh, part of this is something we, we've, we've had a, a season now where a lot of people want to talk about judicial reform, social justice, these sorts of things. Uh, it seems to me that we're missing some of the low-hanging fruit when it comes to prosecutors because they are elected officials. That's something we have direct capability to affect when we look at like the Aubrey case where we went through three prosecutors to get it in court, including a prosecutor who is now up on charges related to that. Uh, mm -hmm. When you look at the Rittenhouse case where almost everybody, regardless of what they thought of the case, did not think it was prosecuted well. Uh, most people think that they were probably charged it wrongly and too quickly without a full uh, due diligence there. And then the in-courtroom prosecution was not done well. Is it your opinion as a legal expert, what some of us in the opinion realm are saying that, hey, if we were really serious about doing some social justice and some judicial reform, the prosecutor side of this is an area that we actually have an ability to affect immediately because they are elected officials. Absolutely. And I think that the Arbery situation, again, is an exception here because that prosecutor, it wasn't just a prosecutorial discretion, a decision that she made. She was, you know, protecting a friend, which is uh, where she crossed the line there. And I think that her facing consequences is a welcome change. Uh, a lot of times prosecutors don't face consequences because there is such a broad discretion for them to make decisions. And uh, we can't, you know, we can't call it misconduct every time they overcharge and someone walks or and, and 
you know, has been vindicated and has now had to go through this trial and, and uh, because of a, a prosecutor's decision. We can't we cannot hold prosecutors responsible for every time that happens. So but yes, you can hold them responsible in a general sense if you think they're not doing a good job by voting. So many of the things that can that we have control over are at a local level. And that's why I don't you know, I repeat something that you've said often that um Pay more attention to your local politics and the, the races that are close to you rather than national because they have a much greater effect on your life. And so if you want to engage in some social justice reform, or especially uh, when it comes to the criminal justice system, then yes, um, your prosecutors run for election probably every two to four years. It's four years where I live. Again, things are different in every state, but that's definitely a place to focus your attention. One of the things that you write on frequently, and I appreciate because I learn from it, uh, you write quite a bit about the Supreme Court. Uh, a lot of high-profile stuff in the Supreme Court right now. Uh, they just did the arguments for the Mississippi abortion law. There's some gun rights stuff on the docket. This is going to be a very busy docket. But outside of the individual cases, just explain the process to people because this, because it's going to be so high-profile, maybe this is the first time they're paying attention to them. Uh, walk f- us through the process because we're having arguments now, but these decisions aren't going to be made until probably June or so. Uh, how <laughs> these decisions are made, how the arguments are made, because it's, you know, explain to folks that the justices also like to sometimes play devil advocate. So you can't really use the oral arguments as a basis or tea leave reading, these sorts of things. Right. And you can't just depend on the ideological makeup of the court despite what we're told in the news media relentlessly on how these things are going to come out. So just broad spectrum, kind of give people a lay of the land on what you've done with the Supreme Court and how to approach this very, very busy term that's coming up. Yeah, I I try not to assume how any particular justice is going to uh, rule or decide, although there are a few (laughs) where you can do so and rarely be wrong. Um, But yes, they just because they may be asking questions during oral argument that seem to suggest their um, tendency to, to land one way or the other. You know, a lot of prosecutors, we've all been to law school on the, all of the, the Supreme Court justices and the lawyers arguing. There's a, the Socratic method. You keep asking questions until the person runs out of answers and then you can feel satisfied and move on. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. Um, but at, they've had their arguments and now they will um, have conference, which is when the justices get together and discuss the cases. They'll argue with each other. They will write their own um, opinions uh, and then pass them around. And they'll, you know, try to convince each other, sort of like a jury does, trying to convince each other of their uh, that their decision is the correct one. And, you know, we'll see what shakes out and where it lands. And we'll find out um, spring at the earliest, I would say, and possibly the end of the the term uh, to get a decision here. Then, you know, generally these decisions are not going to um, change the law across the country immediately. Although there are, in the case of um, the abortion case, there are 12 states which have what they're calling trigger bans, which basically these states have already passed laws that are on their books that will make abortion illegal once it, the Supreme Court makes a decision that would make that law valid. Right now, they can't ban abortion because of, you know, Roe and Casey are the law of the land right now. Once they're not, those those laws that are now unenforceable become enforceable because they no longer have the bar above their head of Roe and Casey, if that is the way the court rules. So there are 12 states that have something in place already to where they may feel immediate impact. 
other states may start introducing legislation to change the status quo where they are based on any potential ruling. Um, so there's a lot of speculation right now what may happen, but depending on where you live, the effect may be more or less immediate. Talking to M. Carpenter, uh, senior editor at Ordinary Times and an attorney. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with more with her right after this on Hertel Radio. We're back on Hertel Radio with M. Carpenter, a attorney and legal commentator and writer and a senior editor at Ordinary Times. Uh, we've been talking about the Supreme Court a little bit, but let's talk about something else that you have a background on. Uh, talk about for folks when we talk about policies and we talk about things like health care and we talk about things like government regulation, just how much of what we talk about in the political realm is really dictated on a governmental level by the law and by regulation, because I think we get to talking about kind of the high-minded ideals of these things, and folks forget that something like healthcare, which you're very familiar with, has a just a labyrinth of laws plus the regulations on top of it that dictate what can and cannot be done at a governmental level. Um, what, where's the disconnect there for folks to start understanding that these are not just ideas that we talk about, but there's some really hard and fast legal guardrails on how these things work? Yeah, I think most people are not um, well versed in the uh, regulatory framework of much of what happens um, in areas like healthcare. You know, you'd be surprised. We talk about the the cost of procedures and and that they're so highly inflated, and kind of leave behind the fact that there are regulations in place about that. So again, it's not doctors, greedy doctors running up prices. They're doing what the regulations allow them to do, so they can uh, you, you know people really need to educate themselves and get more down in the weeds on things before they um, start pontificating. But that's probably not going to happen. Um, so I agree with you. Yeah, that there, there's a lot of, of things that go into uh, our daily lives, the decisions that we have to make, the, the things that we complain about. A lot of it is at a high government level, uh, regulations and statutory guidelines that have to be followed and people are not too familiar with. What is it that you find is, because uh, you've been writing for quite a while publicly about the law, you do explainer, you do a wonderful weekly legal feature, Wednesday Ritz at ordinary-times.com. And maybe just in your personal life, because when, when you're the lawyer, everybody knows, I'm sure you get phone calls all the time from people wanting free legal advice and various schemes along with their, you know, essential oils and other things that they use to lead into that. Um, <laughs> but what is it you find is usually the biggest uh, misnomer that people have about the law? Is it the actual nuts and bolts of how the court systems work? Is it the jargon that is a barrier for people to understand? What is it, in your opinion, that's separating, even in this information age where we have everything at our fingertips and Googleable, uh, yeah. that folks are still not understanding the law, especially when it comes, because I know you've wrote about it online, like just basic stuff like how HIPAA works, which is one of your you know pet peeves, things like this. <laughs> why, why is it that people still get this stuff wrong when we can Google it? Is it the jargon? Is it the mystique of it? Is it the way that the legal profession is gatekeeped? What do you think it is? 
I, I think there's a there's a few things. One is I think meteor portrayals or even you know fictional portrayals of how the court system works um, misleads people. Uh, so many people they're like, well, you do that to me, and I'm going to sue. Okay, for what? What damages do you have? And that's something I see quite a bit when people want to sue because somebody's done something they don't like. But you know, to have a lawsuit, you have to have damages. And an example I like to give out is that my um, mother-in-law at one time asked me how she could go about suing the federal government and uh, for the introduction of Japanese beetles to the United States. And those, she was referring to those, they look like ladybugs, but they're brown and they're in everybody's house up in the corners and they get in the lights. And she has a lot of them living out in the country. And, you know, she's always having to clean them up and she wanted to sue the government. And I said, you can't just, you can't sue the government. And well, why not? People sue the government all the time. Like, okay. So who, who, who particular in the government are you going to sue? I asked her and she said, well, the Department of Agriculture, or well, she says the department who brought them in. And so I said, okay, so let's say you want to sue the Department of Agriculture. Um, what are your damages? Well, they're in my house. Did they damage your house? Well, no, but I have to clean them up. You know, so she's, it's, she's very frustrated. It's a very annoying thing. And I agree with her, but does she have a lawsuit there? No, she doesn't have damages. You can't just sue because somebody ticks you off because they've, you've got to actually have, um, you have to have lost something and having to vacuum out your light fixtures every now and then because of the bugs <laughs> that have died there is probably not going to cut it. But, you know, we're, we live in a litigious society and people are always suing. And to be fair, you can probably find a lawyer that will take that case and run up your your expense tab and, and help you out there. That's an unscrupulous lawyer, though. Uh, but yeah. And then you have people who do know better. This is another thing. People who know better, who uh, have make names for themselves and will post something on social media that they themselves know not to be the case. And I can't think of the specifics right now, but I know there's been at least a few times where Senator Cruz has posted something on Twitter that is kind of just red meat for his base of a legal issue that he knows better. He's smart and he knows that's incorrect, but he just posts it um, and it kind of feeds the fire for people who don't quite understand uh, the legal systems in and outs. And they're just, you know, um, hearing what they want to hear. M. Carpenter, attorney and senior editor at Ordinary-Times, somebody I lean on for uh, legal insight a lot. You can read her work at Ordinary-Times.com. Andrew Donaldson on Herdtel Radio. Welcome back. We appreciate you on the 7th of December, 2021. And uh, how many of you have ever joked that you were pretty sure that our elected officials, especially our Congress critters, are probably on drugs because otherwise they must be insane because that's the only way to explain how they behave? Well, our British friends may actually have that problem. Uh, reports coming out that the uh, Speaker of British's House of Commons, and I'm reading you here from the Washington Post, says he is calling in police to investigate reports that drug use is, quote, rife in Parliament as Prime Minister Boris Johnson dressed up as a police officer to promote his new anti-drug strategy for the country that he's expected to detail. A report in British's Sunday Times said more than 10 areas on the Westminster estate, which spans several sites for lawmakers, government officials, and their staffs, tested positive for traces of cocaine. Areas included the women's bathroom nearest Johnson's office and those near the office home secretary, Pretty Patel. Home secretary would be roughly analogous to our 
kind of a combination of secretary of state and interior and a couple other things. Uh, again, quoting the paper reported that cannabis was also being used openly within the vicinity of 12 bathrooms tested for drugs with detection wipes. Cocaine was reportedly found in 11 of the locations, including places that can be accessed only by those with designated parliamentary pass, which grants entry to lawmakers and staffers, along with clerks, librarians, security personnel, waiters and journalists. Different passes allow different levels of access to halls, bars, committee rooms, and cubby holes within the Victorian age premises. Quote, the account of drug misuse in Parliament given in the Sunday Times are deeply concerning, Lindsay Hoyle, House Speaker, told Sky News on Sunday. I will be raising them as a priority with the Metropolitan Police next week. The Metropolitan Police Service did not immediately return a request for comment. The report came just as Johnson was set to announce a 10-year plan to hold drug offenders responsible and to combat crime in England and Wales. On Monday, he was pictured with police in the city of Liverpool while wearing a dark uniform and a black hat with police stitched on white across the front, an image that caused a stir on social media as hashtag cocaine became a top Twitter twin in the United Kingdom. In Britain, cocaine is a class A drug, the most serious classification. Those found in possession of the substance face up to seven years in prison and unlimited fine or both. Those supplying or producing the drug can face a life sentence. Yet the Sunday Times reported that, quote, there is a cocaine culture in Parliament spanning from well-known lawmakers to young members on both sides of the political spectrum. So the next time some pundit from our UK friends over yonder say that they're pretty sure that the uh, House of Commons is high, there may be validity to the accusation. More her tell right after this. Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, appreciate you watching on YouTube or listening wherever you're getting this, whether it's on the live streams from our friends at Big Talker, uh, on their Facebook page, or the app, if you want to get an app for them and all the other great programs they provide. Also on all the iTunes, Spotify's, and all the other podcasting platforms. Wherever you're getting us, we are sure glad you're with us. And if you take time to do a rating and a comment and share us on your social media and let people know about our little show, we'd sure appreciate it. Now, one thing we always like to do on Hertel is we don't want to just talk about the news. We want to try to stay ahead of it a little bit. Well, one of the ways you can stay ahead of the news is there's certain things that happen that are kind of predictable, and you can tell that they're going to happen because they happen all the time. One of them is some certain legislation that always comes up, and one of those pieces of legislation is up right now. So when you see things in the news uh, over the course of the next few days, and you've seen over the last few weeks, you'll know why those news items are coming up in the news. And we're talking about the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. This is the bill that basically funds all our defense. Uh, For 60 years, it pretty much sails through Congress, except for when it comes up our Congress has figured out that, hey, it sails through Congress. So this is a great chance to start putting a bunch of stuff on this bill that otherwise wouldn't get passed. And we can stick it on this and then go, oh, the soldiers won't get their money if we don't pass this bill that has, you know, all kinds of extra stuff shoved into it. Anyway, so we're going to check in from Punchbowl News, quote, this week, Congress will be wrestling with the National Defense Authorization Act 
and the debt limit, we will be focused on how party leaders navigate the annual defense policy bill. There were lots of discussions over the weekend, and we'll be even more interested in hearing whether they try to attach the debt limit to the package, which our reporting tells us is a tough sell. Remember, the debt limit needs to be lifted by December 15th, according to Treasury Secretary Yellen. I'm reading from Punchbowl News, which I highly recommend you subscribe to. They do great work. Quote, the experts at Rights and ICAP suggest the real X date for the uh, debt limit is sometime in January, but Yellen's statement will be the one getting the most attention from lawmakers. So what's happening here? We're, they have to pass a debt limit. So the debate is, do we stick this with the NDAA, which nobody wants to vote again? Here's the, here's the shell game. The NDAA and uh, the troops and defense is something that's always going to pass because we always need it. Uh, the problem is there's lots of fraud, waste, abuse, and just extra glut and bureaucratic nonsense that goes into defense spending, a massive amounts, because you can always say, well, it's defense spending for the troops, when in reality, it's just going to bureaucrats or some other semi-related program. Meanwhile, the actual troops in the field and the front line equipment may go wanting. We see the same thing in education, by the way, where we have this massive layer of exploding bureaucracy that sucks up all the funding and the in-classroom teachers can't get normal supplies. This government trick gets really old and we need to pay really attention to it. Now, part of the scheme is also news media driven. If you notice over the last few weeks, there has been a glut of stories about different threats worldwide. And there's not that there aren't legitimate threats. China is obviously a threat. Russia is a threat. They're planning maybe to even invade Ukraine again here shortly. So there's threats out there. But the way they're released in the media, you can tell because there'll be sources from the Pentagon or sources from the wider Department of Defense talking about, oh, a special weapon or a new thing or this. Remember, keep in mind, the military and the Department of Defense has not had a good PR couple of months. The uh, disaster pulling out of Afghanistan, including the whitewashing and the kind of brushing under the rug of the disastrous drone strike that killed a bunch of civilians. Uh, no fault was found in that because let's just call that what it is. There can't be fault because then they'd have to explain where they got that intelligence and how that process went. And they're not going to do that. So therefore, it's nobody's fault. So we don't have to talk about the blame. That's just the reality, folks. It's not that I don't love my country. It's not that I'm not proud of my service. It's not that we don't have a great military, but these things happen and we need to call them what they were. So so the news media sources touch in with their sources and their sources feed the news media. Remember, no such thing as a leak. They feed them these stories about impending threats because they want to start getting some of their PR back in lieu of this vote. More money, more funding, more games, more narrative. So when you hear anything about the military over the next couple of days, Understand that the NDAA up for debate in Congress is very much at the source of a lot of this because that's a lot of people's budgets and jobs and futures tied up, and it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the frontline troops at all. And that's before we consider what the Congress critters might shove in the back of this bill because they know that this bill has to go through. So they will try to get lots of things that otherwise would never pass jammed up underneath it. Something to keep an eye on, something that's just how our government works something we need to be aware of and call out and try to fix in the future. That'll do it for her tell today. Uh, this December 7th, once again, 
Make sure you take a moment to reflect on December 7th and the World War II generation and Pearl Harbor and all of those things. Uh, teach your children because the generation that lived through that is almost gone and they're only going to hear about it from us now. We have to entrust them to the history and the ages, and it's on us to make sure we teach the next generation how important they were. However you're listening or watching, we sure appreciate it. We hope you'll be back tomorrow on the next edition of Hertel Radio. Uh, also check out the Hertel podcast, new episodes coming out. If you subscribe to Hertel on any of the platforms, you'll get both automatically. If you haven't yet, please do so. Wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. Until we talk to you again tomorrow, y'all take care. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.